This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit, in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting's 2FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest, and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations and 50 affiliate stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Lott and Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sodorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest hosts and presenters, the former governor of Mississippi, Phil Bryant, and the Honorable Morris McTeague, QSO. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, healthcare, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, Google, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org. Welcome to America's Roundtable. Welcome to America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. It is Saturday morning, and we have completed the first week of this new year. A happy new year to our engaged listeners and partners in the Midwest and the South, and those listening across the nation. This weekend on America's Roundtable, we're delighted to share that we will be joined by Dr. Monica Gandhi for a timely conversation on what to expect in 2022 as it relates to COVID-19, the newest variant, Omicron, policies connected to the pandemic and lessons learned. Dr. Monica Gandhi is Professor of Medicine and Associate Division Chief of the Division of HIV, Infectious Diseases and Global Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco General Hospital. She's the Director of the Ward 86 HIV Clinic at San Francisco General Hospital and Director of the Center for AIDS Research at University of California, San Francisco. And on this note, we welcome Dr. Monica Gandhi and a Happy New Year to you. Welcome, Dr. Gandhi. Thank you. Well, Dr. Gandhi, in your most recent piece in Time magazine title, we can't just impose restrictions whenever COVID-19 surges. Here's a better plan for 2022. And I quote from your piece, the arrival of Omicron, the latest and most transmissible COVID-19 variant to date, underscores the tremendous need for updated COVID-19 policy in the U.S. We always knew it would be difficult to contain a highly transmissible respiratory virus before Omicron. The arrival of Delta variant forced us to abandon our goal of herd immunity, and with the arrival of Omicron, a more appropriate goal of protecting those at risk of severe breakthrough infections is now in order. A new framework in light of Omicron will help us move beyond the continuous cycle of removing and reinstating COVID restrictions based on metrics that are no longer clinically relevant, unquote. Dr. Gandhi, what is your message to governors, state officials, and elected officials responding to this fast-spreading COVID-19 variant? And why did we have to abandon the original goal of herd immunity? So, you know, to explain that, um, there was an idea that we could contain this virus uh, before with the alpha variant. We thought that likely if we just kept people away from each other, mass distance, ventilated, tested, contact traced, did all of those things that we could somehow contain the virus. And really, it is such a transmissible respiratory virus, and it's been getting more transmissible with every iteration. We can't contain it. We are not going to be able to get rid of it. And I think that's a very important message for people to understand. But it doesn't mean that we have to live miserably. It doesn't at all mean that. What we mean by we can't eradicate it is it has animal reservoirs. It looks like a bunch of other respiratory pathogens. We don't have sterilizing immunity from our vaccines. And finally, 
it's so transmissible. So because of this, what we can do and what we need to do is protect everyone from getting sick. And how do we do that? We vaccinate. And for people who haven't chosen to vaccinate, we protect them with antivirals, which we now have, which are oral, which are Paxlovid and Molnupiravir. And then third, anyone who's gotten a vaccine, but who's a risk for a severe breakthrough, and those are usually immunocompromised patients or people are older, we protect them with these other strategies like masks, really strong masks, and social distancing and testing and contact tracing. But for everyone else who's vaccinated and boosted and the young are not that much at risk, especially very young children, we can go to stop these restrictions and protect the vulnerable who are vulnerable for severe breakthroughs. So who needs to get vaccinated after this layout? Do you recommend children to be vaccinated? And who should get the booster shot? Because at one point you said in your article, you said the spacing out of vaccine doses in young men and careful attention to any adverse events from boosting men under age 30 should be put into practice without concern for decreasing vaccine uptake. Were there any side effects in boosting men under the age of 30? And what is your recommendation? Yes. So even when the booster conversation came out, um, and now it's been recommended for everyone and even down to 12, um, there are definitely risk groups that we need to boost. We need to boost older people. We need to boost most people, with med- everyone with medical conditions, even people around immunocompromised. And it kept on expanding. So we can boost a lot of people. That is, it, it's appropriate. But there are some concerns about younger men, um, especially with the mRNA vaccines, that there is a risk of myocarditis. And we don't have data on boosting younger men. Usually it's uh, the highest risk is between 16 and 29 uh, of giving that third shot. And if that would increase the risk of myocarditis. And then what they do in Canada is they space out doses uh, eight weeks apart to minimize the risk of myocarditis and very good data on that. So we, every time someone tries to talk about spacing or boosting young men or adverse effects, you're accused of trying to spur vaccine hesitancy, but in no way does being nuanced in recommendations and really thinking about it and thinking deeply about our boosting recommendations spur vaccine hesitancy. I do think that children should be vaccinated. I wrote an article about it, but there's no five to 11 year olds, but I do recommend spacing out those doses to minimize the risk of myocarditis for young boys. And I've done that for my two young boys um, and also would not boost them until I have more data that there's um, a need for that. So all of that put together just means, and, and really we talked about vaccines in the way that you just said, nuance around vaccines, nothing wrong with that. It's It's how we do science. Um, It's how we've always done science and thought about vaccination programs. And then the masking is the other thing that we want nuance about, which is that blanket mask mandates with such an incredibly transmissible variant doesn't make sense anymore. And we want to, again, protect those who are at risk for severe breakthroughs. Or if you don't want any exposure at all, certainly you have to wear a KN95 or an N95 or an FFP2 or a KF94, but you need these stronger masks if you don't want any exposure, and certainly you should if you have, um, if you're immunocompromised or have a risk of severe breakthrough, but just blanket mask mandates on everyone, especially young children, are not making sense anymore when it's an endemic virus. And Dr. Gandhi, in your excellent piece, co-authored with Jean Noble, titled, We Can't Just Impose Restrictions Whenever COVID-19 Surges, Here's a Better Plan for 2022, which was recently published in The Time, you shared about the need of using different metrics as the basis for COVID-19 restrictions. 
And most importantly, you say that we should not use the number of COVID-19 infections, but the number of COVID hospitalizations when deciding on lockdowns, physical distancing, or mask use. And you mentioned Singapore, which changed their metrics from COVID cases to hospitalizations in September 2021, and recent implementation of the same policy in Marine County in California. Dr. Gandhi, this sounds as the most common sense approach to look at the number of hospitalizations instead of cases for COVID-related lockdowns. And why have we not adopted this policy much earlier in America? You know, I think what happened is that certainly before vaccines, hospitalizations and cases tracked. They were not along the same lines um, but they track together in sort of parallel lines. And so a case number was extremely meaningful because it could lead to hospitalizations. Now, after vaccines, what happened is the next variant that came along after vaccines was Delta. And we saw an extremely clear pattern of uncoupling of cases and hospitalizations. High cases, like in the Bay Area with Delta, low hospitalizations, because you have vaccines and was a highly vaccinated region. And now with Omicron, that uncoupling is even more dramatic because it's a less virulent virus inherently, most likely. I mean, it's certainly that we have more immunity in the population, but there also are now six studies that show that it's not able to infect lung cells very well, animal studies and human ex vivo kind of transplant lung studies. So all of that put together means that our cases are going very high, but our hospitalizations in places of high immunity are staying low and Omicron is bringing that down even more. So what that means is that that's where why we were even worried about COVID to begin with, is that it caused severe disease. We were never worried about colds or upper respiratory symptoms. That's We never shut down society for adenoviruses or coronaviruses that cause upper respiratory symptoms. We only shut them down, shut down society because we didn't have a vaccine and now we have a vaccine. So now it's COVID-19 related hospitalizations that matter. And it has to be for COVID, meaning we I work in a hospital. I don't know why people don't realize this, but we swab everyone's nose and you could, you and I could be sitting here with a little Omicron in our nose because it's so transmissible, but you wouldn't know it unless you happen to be admitted to a hospital for a broken leg. We swab everyone's nose and we say it's COVID, but that's just because we put them in an isolation room, but it doesn't mean they're sick with COVID. So we need to distinguish for COVID and or with COVID especially with Omicron that's so transmissible, and then go on COVID-19 hospitalizations on how we're doing with COVID. And that's what we do for influenza surveillance. We're going from pandemic to endemic with COVID-19. And we need to go to the influenza surveillance model. Health departments track cases, but hospitalizations are what the public knows about. So they can don't know, they don't get so worried about cases. And that's what Singapore is doing. The Philippines just changed that model recently. And it really helps the population in terms of not having so much fear. Dr. Gandhi, on school closures, you have stressed through op-ed pieces, including your writings in the Wall Street Journal and other key newspapers regarding the pandemic's toll on teen mental health. It appears that some state officials and teachers unions are now calling for school closings again or reinstating virtual classrooms again. Dr. Gandhi, what are the concerns that you have brought to the forefront about school closings and efforts to push virtual classrooms amid Omicron and the impact on our children and what are the solutions that ought to be adopted? 
So, you know, you're right that I have all along said that we never, we never close schools for pandemics like this, never. 1918, the most progressive city in our country, New York and Chicago said, no way, we're not going to close schools because schools are the place where children need to be. And they were pushed back against, but they said no way. And then everyone else closed schools for four months total. And that's it. And they opened up. So we close schools here very readily. And it has had impact Today's New York Times, actually, David Leonard had an article about all the impacts on children, on mental health, on eating disorders, on obesity rates, on exercise rates, on just learning loss. And it's two years. We've had two years, so we can't close schools. We've learned that ventilation is one of the most important things in schools. We don't need to do asymptomatic testing. We need to just do testing if a child is ill and uh, feels symptoms. Um, that's what we're doing, for example, in the hospital setting. Uh, we've never done asymptomatic surveillance testing in our hospital. We just test if we don't feel well. Right now we're masking, though I think that we should unmask children or at least give it optional three months after the availability of the child vaccine, which was November 4th, so three months after that. And we have a teacher and adult vaccination, so they should all be vaccinated, I hope. They are vaccinated, which protects against severe disease. So closing schools at this point is very sad to me. And you're right. It's uh, the, My question, I hope it doesn't have a long-term impact, but there are questions of it having a long-term impact on the children that had to go through this. And Dr. Gandhi, in another of your excellent pieces titled The New COVID Drugs Are a Bigger Deal Than People Realize, which was published in The Atlantic in November 2021, you said, and I quote, Fortunately, the United States is poised to authorize two oral antivirals, Molnupiravir and Paxlovid. Both come in a pill form, and a five-day treatment course of each will provide certain patients with significant benefits. They represent the biggest advance yet in treating patients already infected with COVID-19, unquote. Uh, Dr. Kanti, could you kindly share with us the benefits of these new COVID-19 drugs and who should be taking them? Yes, I mean, these are just a huge advance because other treatments that we've had so far are quite nonspecific, um, like steroids, for example, with severe disease, and then remdesivir is an intravenous antiviral. So these are oral. Five days done, oral, twice a day, totally easy to take. Molnupiravir decreased the risk of hospitalization and death by 30% if you were someone who was unvaccinated and at risk for severe disease, and Paxlova decreased it by 89%. That's as good as a vaccine. So if you choose not to take a vaccine because there have been people who have declined the vaccine, we have a way now to treat them that keeps them out of the hospital by 90%. So it should have been, I mean, the minute that it came out, this data, this should have been in the pharmacies yesterday, but uh, we are not rolling it out as fast as we should. Paxlovid would be huge because you put Paxlovid together with treating anyone who's unvaccinated or who's a severe breakthrough, who's at, you know vaccinated but at risk for severe disease, and you have the vaccines. And that is an oral treatment, an easy vaccine, and we really could solve this problem. We've been late to therapeutics, but we now have it. So we have to work harder on getting it fast out there. Oral is much easier than monoclonal antibodies. Dr. Gandhi, you and Dr. Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA chief and others, have been talking about this season as being the endemic season rather than the full-blown pandemic. And uh, since the start of the pandemic, we heard figures from leading experts as well as WHO citing the figures 60 to 70 percent, bringing together this herd immunity. And in America, we have some 75 percent of our 
population that have received a single dose, 62% are fully vaccinated, and some 200 million people in the U.S. and 20% have received a booster. Hence, are we at that level where we can say that America has reached herd immunity? And as we look at 2022, is there a silver lining out there or is there light at the end of the tunnel? Yes. I mean, there definitely is light at the end of the tunnel, partially because of Omicron, though. Um, so what happened is that we herd immunity is now we've had to abandon that term. But the word is control. And how do you control an infectious disease? Well, you make it so that people don't get very sick from it and that our hospitalizations stay manageable. So what is the typical rate of influenza hospitalizations? It's actually about 50 over 100,000 in a typical year. Now we know with the vaccines that the rate of being hospitalized with COVID is 3.9 over 100,000 if you're vaccinated. That's just two doses. Or it's 63 over 100,000 if you're unvaccinated. So we would like to get more people vaccinated, but Paxlovid will help with compassionately treating those patients. And so then what we're going to do when it gets endemic and what is Omicron doing? It's causing a lot of immunity. It's boosting our own immunity if you've been vaccinated because so many people have gotten mild breakthroughs with it. And it's also causing a lot of immunity in those who are unvaccinated. Then you get to an endemic stage where every season we are going to have cases of COVID in the hospital, but we know how to treat them. We have treatments now. We can do it. We can manage it. We don't shut down society. And then the cases, again, are only tracked by health departments so that we don't worry we don't worry the public about cases. And if we do that and then we stop isolating and people um, because, you know, they're vaccinated. So if they have a mild infection then and everyone around them is vaccinated, then people can't get sick. Uh, that's what we were trying to prevent to begin with. So we're getting into endemicity and Omicron actually kind of forced us into it more than, than we wanted uh, because of the it's being so transmissible. It's causing a lot of immunity. Actually, we had an opportunity to compare the cases of Sweden and Michigan because of similar size populations and uh, similar climate. And we talked to a member of European Parliament representing Sweden, Charlie Weimers. And at that time, it was April, actually, he shared the fact that Sweden did not impose any mask mandates, did not close any businesses, and the schools remained open. And the Swedish government issued recommendations of social distancing and mask wearing. On the other side, Michigan had major COVID restrictions and lockdowns, closing businesses and schools. And around that time, on April 14, we compared that Michigan had a higher vaccination rate of 35.7% than Sweden, which had only 15.4% with at least one dose. And when we recently compared the numbers of Sweden and Michigan, we saw that Sweden had the total of 15,000 deaths on 10.35 million people, which is 0.14%, while Michigan had 26,000 deaths of 9.9 million people, which was 0.26%, so that Michigan had 86% higher death rate than Sweden. What are your thoughts about this telling example? How did Sweden manage to keep the death rate relatively low with lesser restrictions? And I know we're going to learn a lot and we're going to go back with the research to see the details of every country, how other countries fared and different populations, as you mentioned in our last interview. So what are your thoughts about this comparison analysis? 
I think it's a fair question to ask once we get into endemicity everywhere is to go back and look at how different states and governments did things and compare things. I mean, there's also, we also have more comorbidities in our country. We really do. We have, we have, we are have higher rates of obesity. We don't have as much trust in our public health officials. If you have more trust, maybe people were voluntarily doing things that we would have done better here if they weren't mandated, like mask wearing and, and distancing, because maybe it was the mandates instead of just suggesting or recommending that made people upset. And I, I think we're going to have to look at everything and understand it, because I'll tell you one thing we can never do in a pandemic again is we can never close schools to the degree we did and we have to balance harms. We have to balance harms to mental health with the harms of the virus. And we became in the United States very politicized and, and didn't act like there were different opinions and there was a lot of censorship. And I hope that we learn from our experience in the United States. Indeed. Mm. Dr. Gandhi, we've always appreciated your commentaries, your sound advice. And uh, as we talked about this earlier on, when you get hit from all sides, you know that you're saying something <laughs> right on target and communicating with an independent voice. Thank so you. we truly appreciate your courage and uh, your continued efforts in informing us, educating us, and uh, giving us a sense of hope and optimism for 2022. Yes. So we thank you for your continued leadership, Dr. Gandhi. Thank you for this common sense approach and also an optimism. I think that people will be optimistic when they hear the message. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Thank you. Dr. Monica Gandhi is Professor of Medicine and Associate Division Chief of the Division of HIV, Infectious Diseases and Global Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco General Hospital. She is the Director of the Ward 86 HIV Clinic at San Francisco General Hospital and Director of the Center for AIDS Research at the University of California, San Francisco. We encourage individuals to go to your search engines and check out Dr. Monica Gandhi's excellent writings. Once again, Happy New Year and thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. Thank you, Dr. Gandhi. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lanza Broadcasting's two FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations and 50 affiliate stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Ladinsami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sodorchi, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest hosts and presenters, the former governor of Mississippi, Phil Bryant, and the Honorable Morris McTeague, QSO. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, healthcare, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, Google, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org.